Well, this morning we have an opportunity to complete our study in the book of Colossians. And so I hope you have found this to be a profitable exercise as we've studied this together. I pray the Lord has moved and stirred in your heart and brought to the surface things that, that you weren't aware of and has encouraged you uh, during this difficult time that we're going through and going through together. This morning we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Now, at the end of Paul's letters, you'll, you will have observed, if you've read very many of Paul's epistles, he gets to the end and he sends kind of onward greetings. And so, I send this message to you and it comes from so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and, so and, and a variety of different things. Now, there, there's a pattern that happens to us as we go through it and we're reading these things individually. And so, you find yourself in your devotional and you're reading through Galatians, you're reading through Colossians, Philippians, whatever. When you come to this list of names, you just speed up, and it's just like you just kind of your eyes hit the page, you fumble through a couple of names, and then you say, done, on to the next thing. But one of the things that I hope that you see this morning in 7 through 18 is this beautiful web that Paul has weaved in experiencing and seeing the backstories of these men and women, the things they have experienced, the things they have done for the kingdom. And the things that as we examine their lives, as we examine the things that they've gone through, how it just kind of calls us and, and it beckons us to be more. Beckons us to be weaker. It beckons us to be more vulnerable. In the, the, the web that he weaves throughout this, it beckons us all to be more faithful and for our faithfulness to take a variety of different approaches. And so I want us to look at uh, these as we begin to just kind of take them in six different movements of what faithfulness looks like. One of the things that I think it's important for us to realize is that sometimes faithfulness, what it looks like is quiet, invisible, forgettable service to the Lord. Quiet, invisible, forgettable service to the Lord. Frequently, I'll have someone come up to me and let's say, listen, Pastor Matt, I'm not serving in a variety of different ways right now. In fact, I'm serving in this many ways. But I, I really have a sense that I'd like to do something. And, and oftentimes the way it goes is that the service they describe and the thing they want to do is decidedly public. And so what they want to do is to go from doing nothing to doing something where everybody gets to see them. And so my, my favorite was one day I had a guy call and he said, uh, I'd love to preach sometime. And I don't know this guy. Apparently he'd showed up on Sunday and didn't think I was uh, very worthy and so he volunteered to, to fill in for me. I said, well, that's great. I, I just don't think that's going to happen for you. And, and Jesse and Justin have a whole separate saga that goes on that has to do something with a fake email address and contacting me. And so you can talk to them sometime about that. But it seems like a, a lot of our service, what it wants to be is outward. It wants to be visible. It wants to be seen. And it wants to be recognizable. But the wonderful, beautiful pattern that we see in the New Testament over and again is service that, that if their names were not listed and if their acts were not recorded, that they would be otherwise completely forgettable. And so Paul mentions two people in this list. One of them is a, a woman by the name of Nympha. Now, what you'll find in verse 15 is that what she did was the simple task of opening her home. The church there in Colossae needed somewhere to meet. It was looking for, for a, a place that was suitable for them to get together and for them to meet. And this woman decides to open up her home for other people to come in. And Paul records her name. And so we see this encouragement to 
using the things that God has given us to be impactful for the kingdom. God is not asking you to make use of money you don't have. He's not asking you to make use of a personality you don't have. He's not asking you necessarily to make use of a house you don't have. He's asking you to make use of those things that he has entrusted to you for the furtherance of his kingdom. So this woman looks around and she says, I have a house we could meet in. And so she's recorded within scripture as being this woman who engaged in quiet, forgettable, and invisible service, being faithful to use those things that the Lord had entrusted to her. Tychicus, verse 7, Paul speaks of Tychicus. He says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is actually recorded in a number of different places throughout uh, Paul's epistles and in, in, in the book of Acts. And what we find is that his job in this time was to carry the letter. His job was to carry the letter. And so Paul would bring a secretary in and the, and the secretary would write out the letter and then they would turn it over and they would hand it to Tychicus and he'd put it in his pocket and he would head out to Ephesus. He'd head out to some city and then he would walk in there and he'd say, here guys, here's a letter from Paul. And so they gather the whole church together, and then Tychicus would go, <clears throat> he'd clear his throat, because that's what you do before you speak, clear his throat, and he would make sure his toe goes on right, and then he would just begin to read the letter in its entirety to them. Certainly uh, implementing apple juice is necessary. And so Tychicus goes down through, and he, he reads the letter to them, and he gets to the end, and essentially he'd say something along these lines, do you have any questions? And they'd say, of course, it's a letter from Paul, we have a variety of questions. And so he goes through and he begins to expound and to communicate and help them to apply and help them to understand the thing that Paul had said, sent to them and the things that they are to get from this letter. So we have this idea within us that, that you and I should be engaged in quiet, forgettable, invisible service. And there's so many different ways you can do that right now. Some of us can find neighbors, we can find people in our community, we can find people in our small group, in our former Sunday school classes. You can find people you know that for whatever reason, they, they don't know how to do Walmart pickup, they're afraid to go in the grocery store, and so they're sitting there, and they've been eating ramen noodles for the last five months, and it's looking great on them, but they need something different. And she so say, can I go pick up groceries for you? Some of us will see our neighbors who have no ability to mow their grass, and we mow their grass for them. Some of us will find uh, people who have not, we've not seen recently, and we will call them. When the Lord brings someone to your mind, you're going to get out a card, and you're going to write their name, and you're going to take this sticky little thing, you're going to lick it, you're going to put it on the front, you're going to write their address, you're going to put it in a little blue box, and like magic, it's going to travel here and yonder and round, and it's going to come to them, and they're going to open their mailbox, and to their surprise, they're going to say, what is this archaic form of communication? God bless them. And they're going to read it and they're going to be encouraged. Quiet, forgettable, invisible servants. Some of us are going to pick up a phone and we're going to call someone and we're going to speak to them. We need to find ways that we can serve one another that don't have to be recognized, that doesn't have to be on a stage. It's not something we have to post about. It doesn't have to be you with a picture be like, I'm dropping this in the mailbox and you take a picture and you post it out because you want the adulation that comes from people recognizing your service. The service that we rend to the Lord should be that which is invisible. It should be that that we do not need the accolade of men. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them. 
goes on, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Service that desires to honor the Lord is service that doesn't need the recognition of men. Amen? And one of the ways that we can serve so incredibly well in this time is being willing to engage in quiet, forgettable, invisible service. To give our all, to be anonymous, to serve the Lord faithfully. Service also requires that we be willing to be exhausted, that we be willing to pour our all. Paul speaks of Epaphras in verses 12 through 13, but the first time we encounter the, the word of the man Epaphras is back in chapter 1 and verse 7. Paul was speaking to the Colossians about when they heard the gospel and how they responded to the gospel. And back in chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then here in verses 12 and 13, this is what he writes about him. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And why is he praying? Why is he endeavoring? Why is he tireless in his demonstration and his exercise of faithfulness? He is praying for them that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul goes on, he says, For I bear witness about him that he has worked hard for you and for all those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So what we find in Epaphras is this brother who heard the gospel, who responded in faith, and then just went nuts all over the city of Colossae. And he'd walk up and say, sir, have you heard about Jesus the Messiah? And you say, no, I haven't heard about him. And so he begins to pour out this testimony of what Jesus has done for him and how Jesus has radically transformed and changed his life. And that's not enough. And so he grabs him and says, come on with me. We're going to go somewhere else. And so he comes up and he says, hello, uh, gentlemen here. Have you ever heard about Jesus Christ the Messiah? And you're like, no, I know Artemis. I know nothing about Jesus. He says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. I was dead in my sins and my transgressions. I was lost and, and enmeshed in sin. I was a horrible person, but he has made me alive and he has redeemed me to God. Jesus came in the fullness of time. He died for my sins. He rose again and he has welcomed me into the embrace and the forgiveness of God. Would you like to know him? And so this is what he does all over the city of Colossae and he becomes in some sense their pastor and then after a time he heads to Rome to be trained by Paul so he might be able to be more effective back in Colossae. But when he's there in Rome, he thinks of his church and when he thinks of his church, he thinks, do not fail. Please, Lord, do not fail. So what does he pray for them? He prays that they would be mature and they would stand. He prays that they would grow in assurance. He prays that they wouldn't be led astray. He prays that all the various rules that are being brought down upon them where people say, this is what it looks like to be faithful. And this is, these are the things you need to do, that they would stick to the gospel. Epaphras is tireless in his engagement and zealous for the faith of others. God calls us to be tireless in our demonstration and our givenness to faithfulness so that others might benefit. You can think about people in your life. You can think about men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ, who, for, for which this has been a particularly difficult time. And God entrusts to you, he gives to you an opportunity to engage for them, to be faithful to come before his throne, to carry their name to the Lord, to be tireless in our engagement for others, repeatedly saying, Lord, do not let them fail. Let them be found faithful, cause them to stand fully mature. Do not let them be wrecked and destroyed 
by weakness and fear, but God, help them to be buttressed by my prayer. And we assault the kingdom of God with their name, carrying it repeatedly to his throne, saying, God, would you send help to them? Would you send encouragement to them? One of the amazing things found here in verse 11, and if you blink, you'll miss it. He speaks of justice, and then he says, and these are, on, are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So found there within verse 11, what we find is that Paul's group is, it is consisting of, it's comprised of people from radically different worldviews. And so Paul uses this shorthand there to say, essentially, we have men in my party who are Jewish, and we have men in my party, we have men in my group who are of a Gentile background. And so what Paul is implicitly communicating to us is that there is diversity there in this Colossian church. And so they are faithful to engage in that diversity. They are faithful to be, uh, to be proponents of that diversity. They do not require rigorous fidelity to every opinion that's there. And I think one of the things that we see in Scripture over and again is the importance of how the gospel comes in and it brings disparate worldviews and it, submit the, it submits both of them to the gospel. Ephesians 2 and 14, speaking of Jesus, it says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. He says he's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, Paul more strongly says it this way. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what we see in the gospel that allows the possibility of holding a variety of different views outside of the centrality of the gospel. Now why is this important for us? Why is this especially important for our moment have you not read? Have you not seen? Do you not see the variety of ways that people are seeking to pull themselves, their families, their friendships, their churches, every association that they've had before? They find out that somebody has a wonky view on something from their perspective, and what do they do? They just cancel them and move on. The church of Jesus Christ cannot engage this way. Listen, if the gospel of Jesus Christ was good enough to bring people of such animosity towards one another, Jews and Gentiles together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it is sufficient to unite around one cause, Republicans and Democrats. It is sufficient. It is able. It must bring together those who will wear masks and those who will not. But repeatedly in our articulation and in our behaviors, we testify that the gospel may be good enough for salvation, but it's not good enough to cause me to be gracious to people who disagree with me. So we blister them with our words and we divorce them with our actions. The gospel can cause us to come together. Now listen, the enemy is so incredibly insidious in this and so incredibly artful. If you had told me back in 2019, well, really very much of any of these things, I'd say that sounds like a terrible movie plot no one will ever go. But if you just said, listen, whole churches are going to split, pastors are going to quit over an issue of, of people wearing a mask or not, I'd say, listen, that's just the silliest thing I've ever heard. But it's true and it happens. 
uh, people that decide whether or not they will go to a church based, based on whether or not the church is pro-mask or anti-mask. Are you kidding me? The first question that you'll hear out of some people's mouth isn't, where do you stand on the centrality of Jesus? Where do you stand on his word? But, but no, do you guys require masks or not? Because that's a big deal for me. We subordinate the gospel, we subordinate scripture to a tertiary element for which we might be able to disagree. You can't behave this way. We dishonor our Lord. We show an awful side of Christians to a world. Check this out. It's already wondering whether or not we truly believe these things. We can disagree. But we cannot be graciousless cannot lose our kindness in so doing. Does that make sense? Is that clear? He extolled their diversity. We must lean into diversity and tertiary elements while we hold fast to the gospel and refuse to bend, refuse to waver, refuse to submit in a culture that desperately wants to see us make everything primary and nothing secondary or tertiary. We must doggedly hold fast to the gospel, being unwilling to yield, even to the point of being broken. One of the great things within this is we see three quick pictures of redeemed faithfulness. Men that you'd otherwise skip over if you didn't know their backstory. Paul speaks first of Onesimus, this man who would go with Tychicus back to Colossae. Well, Onesimus, you would read about in the book of Philemon, and we'll study it next was a slave, a non-believing slave in Colossae. And, and at some point, he decided to, to leave, to run away, and so he heads out. And then in the cosmic humor of the Lord, he finds himself stumbling alongside Paul in Paul's house arrest. And it is there he hears and responds to the gospel in faith. And so Onesimus had left Colossae dead and in his sin and enslaved. And what he finds in Rome is freedom. He finds renewal. He finds forgiveness. And in a real sense, what he finds is redemption from his sins. And what Paul commissions him to do is to go back to Colossae to be a living, enacted testimony to the redemptive power of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is faithful to redeem. And we see that in the life of Onesimus. Paul lists here John Mark. He lists here Mark in verse 10. And the fascinating thing about Mark is if you flip over to the book of Acts in chapter 13, what you see is Paul headed out on a missionary endeavor. And so it's Paul, it's Barnabas, it's Mark, and they are amazing. They're like the who's who. If you had their rookie baseball cards, they'd really be worth something now. And so they're traveling around in the first century, and they're sharing the gospel with people. And then what happens is, as Paul and Barnabas and Mark are traveling along, all of a sudden Mark's like, this is too crazy, I'm out of here. He packs his bags and he goes home in the middle of the night. Well, what happens? Mark sheepishly begins to make his way back to Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15, and he says something along the, along the lines of, Hey, man, that was just, he got real there for a minute, but I'm back. Let's go. Barnabas looks at his cousin and says, that's cool. Come on. Paul looks at him and says, uh -uh, I ain't going. If he goes, I'm done. And the text says this. 
it says there arose a strong disagreement. Y'all, voices were raised, masks were coming off so you could read my lips. Paul and Barnabas split. Paul goes with Silas, Barnabas and Mark head elsewhere. And so we're left to wonder, is there no room for disagreement and restoration with brothers? But what we see here, and Paul's working again with Mark, and Paul sending out Mark again, and what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? For he is very useful to me for ministry. The fracture in their relationship has been restored. The gospel has redeemed the waywardness of Mark. Their friendship displays the power of the gospel and God's redemptive work in humanity. It's a beautiful picture of restoration. Some of us in this time, we have lost friends. Some of us have destroyed relationships and either people being ungracious to us or us bestowing the favor upon them of receiving our ungracious attitude. But what we see in the gospel is an opportunity to declare God's redemptive work, to ask for forgiveness, to receive forgiveness. And we also see within Paul's listing here in Colossians chapter 4, a cautionary tale. In verse 14, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Now, the terrifying thing about Demas, and, and, and Paul doesn't give us anything else there in Colossae, the terrifying thing about Demas, though, is that what we find is that Demas abandons Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9 says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And that's the last we read of him. The New Testament doesn't continue his story. We have no way of knowing whether or not Demas was redeemed, whether or not he was restored before the end of Paul's life, whether or not he went on to be useful for the kingdom of God. The last thing we hear of Demas is that he loved this world and he abandoned the work of the gospel. There are so many opportunities before us to fall into the trap of loving this world. I love this world and its entrapments, and so I'm going to respond this way. I love this world and what it has to offer, and so I'm going to make this decision. Christian, this world for you is a passing, temporary, fleeting, ephemeral, transitory, smoke-filled place. You are not made for this world. You are made for the next one. Do not live your life in such a way as to set all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of your energy on this place. We set our hopes on a home that we've never been to. I set my wishes and my dreams on a reality that God has only allowed me to see the shoreline. We are created to live forever with him in a new heavens and a new earth, not this place. This should be good news for us. But my suspicion is that for many of us, 
hearing these words, it's a dagger in your heart. You want this place to be your forever home. Let the redemptive work of the gospel make you homesick for a place you've never been. Let the encouragement of his Holy Spirit loosen the anchor of your heart from this place that you would surrender your moorings and find yourself headed towards your new home forever in the place where you're destined to be. Let us not set our hearts and our love on this place, but let us find ourselves falling more in love with the place God has taken us. Tell you, in the midst of this, some of us have found ourselves being those in need of redemption. Some of us have found ourselves being those where we recognize not our faithfulness, but we recognize the complete and utter lack and exercise of faithfulness in this time. It's the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God specializes in people that get it wrong. That God specializes in the faithless. That God specializes in the broken and the wayward. And to all those who fail. And to all those who goes astray. Do you know what his word is? Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Some of us heap upon our backs our failures. Some of us heap upon our back our waywardness. What God calls us to do in the midst of this is not to do better. It is not to quit failing. It is to come to him broken and be made whole. It's to come to him weak, need, and enfeebled, and to be strengthened. Let us be found by the one who would submit to us, give to us his power for redemption. Let us experience redeemed faithfulness in the midst of these things. Paul gives us two parting pictures of enduring faithfulness. In verse 17, and this is the only word that we read of him, it says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. This, in a very real sense, is like when uh, my wife goes out of town and she calls back and she said, did you tell the boys to do their homework? And I'm like, y'all got to do your homework before mom gets home. She doesn't need to know that we did it in the last 30 minutes. We've had three days to complete it. You have to get your work done. This house had better be spick and span top to bottom. What about this? No, throw that away. That's irredeemable. Tell her we wanted a rugless living room. She doesn't need to know what happened. It would hurt her heart and damage your witness before your mom. Just go with it. What we see is Paul calling this brother and saying, see that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. What an encouragement that our God in our lives and in our experiences and in our friendships has entrusted to us those relationships. And his word isn't to walk away and to cancel those people. His word is to stay faithful in the middle of these things. Complete the ministry that he's given to you. Parents, you feel like your kids are out of control and you feel like you just can't win. Be faithful to fulfill the ministry. 
Students, this is an incredibly difficult semester. This is an incredibly difficult year. But he has placed before you the salvation of your peers. He has placed before you this work that he's given you to complete in school and in college. Fulfill the ministry that he's given you. Do not quit before you're done. Take the example of Paul in verse 18. He says, remember my chains. Paul exists in a reduced capacity, chained to a soldier, and there even in that place where his freedoms have been removed, where he has lost the ability to go and come as he pleases, what is his word to them? Mourn my loss of freedom. What is his word to them? Write a letter to the emperor. No, his words are to them. Find encouragement in my suffering. Remember my chains. Paul gives us this wonderful picture of enduring faithfulness. The most amazing picture of faithfulness we see throughout this isn't in one of the 11 names listed. It's not, one of the, it's not one of the two groupings of people listed. The most terrific form of faithfulness, the picture of faithfulness we see in the book of Colossians is found in the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back to chapter 1. Paul writes and says, starting in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Listen to what he did, y'all. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is above all things. He's holding everything together. He shows us, he displays to us God. He is the conduit whereby we might know God. He has made peace for us through the blood of his cross. And look at what he says about us and how we find him. He says, and you. And you insisting that your service be seen. And you finding yourself tired and weary. And you engaging in such a way that says everybody needs to look like me, be like me, respond like me. And you who refuse to receive redemption, who push off those who fail, and you who grow weary. And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let us be faithful. Let us be faithful to the one who has redeemed us. Let us be faithful in this time that calls everybody to respond in their own way. Let us be unshakable and faithful to Jesus. Let us pray. Father, I'm thankful that you give us an opportunity respond to you. God, candidly, admittedly, there are those of us in this room that have not been faithful. We've been anything but. We've not been steady, stalwarts. But for whatever reason, this has shaken us to our cores and we've not responded well. 
and we're wondering what space there is in this place for us to come back. God, would you redeem us when we're wayward? Would you help us to experience anew the forgiveness you already won for us in the cross of Calvary? And you were faithful when we were faithless. And we thank you for that. Father, we want to pray for those who are in this room or in this hearing that have not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've sought to be faithful or good enough on their own. They've disbelieved in your gospel, found it to be a farce, that you would bring them to the end of themselves. Cause them to see their inability, and in that, cause them to behold your beauty. Your son Jesus suffered and died on their behalf so that their sins might be covered. He was raised so that they might be forgiven, so that they might experience salvation. So God, I pray that you would move in their hearts, stir through your Holy Spirit to produce conviction in them and call them to yourselves. We submit all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.